2: I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating.
0: My guess is for most people listening to this podcast, if you have like, you know, a decent middle class income, if you have a roof over your head and food on the table, pretty much changing your circumstances is not going to affect your happiness in the way you think which is a startling discovery. It violates every intuition that I definitely have about happiness and that most people have. You know, we think that happiness comes from our circumstances, but in practice, it comes from all kinds of other things. It comes from our mindsets. It comes from our behaviors, um, which is frustrating because, you know, as a happiness expert these days, I see a lot of people putting lots of work into changing your circumstances, but that's not going to help you in the way you think.
2: That's Yale University professor Lori Santos. Her college course, called Psychology and the Good Life, became the most popular course in Yale history with around a quarter of the undergraduate population enrolled. She now hosts a popular podcast called The Happiness Lab, which gives advice and insights into how to be happier. Just like those Yale students, I was eager to learn more. But we started our conversation with an encounter we almost had once on an island full of monkeys in the Caribbean. This is so great to be talking to you because we didn't meet when we should have met on the Isle of Cayo Santiago.
0: Well, you know, what's funny is we actually filmed on Cayo Santiago. I'm trying to remember when it was. This was like in the 90s. I think the first, the only time you were on Cayo, I was the grad student then when you were interviewing Susan Carey and we did the monkey magic trick experiments.
2: So were you there that day? Because I thought we didn't meet.
0: I was there back then, but I was like Laurie Santos' graduate student. I was like in the background running the studies, not the important person. So it's funny to like... So people may <laughs> actually- not know
2: about this island. It's an island that's populated entirely by monkeys, right? How many monkeys are there?
0: Uh, these days, it's about 1,500 monkeys. Wow. So it's pretty packed with monkeys.
2: Well, I was there for about an hour. There was a monkey right above me. And I said, oh, look at the monkey right up on right up on top of my head. And then I found out why he was on top of my head. He let go with some, some personal stuff.
0: They, they do that. They, they suss out who's the most important person in any film <laughs> shoot. And they oh. choose to poop directly oh, on that thanks. person.
2: <laughs> so what were you studying that day?
0: Yeah, so back then we were studying kind of how monkeys think about the world. So I I was I grew up as a psychologist, really interested in what's called comparative cognition, which is kind of comparing how we as humans think with how the monkeys think about the world. And back then, I think the first time we shot together on Cayo Santiago, which makes me feel very old now, because I was back in, as a graduate student back then. I think we were studying what the monkeys know about number, and we were looking at whether or not the monkeys could do simple arithmetic, like adding that one plus one equals two. Um, and the answer, shockingly, seems to be like they share that capacity spontaneously, right? You know, if you show them these little magic tricks in which you switch the outcome of different objects, um, the monkeys can tell what's the correct answer and what's the incorrect answer.
2: I saw a video of you, you working with monkeys where they would get to steal a grape and they would check to see if you were looking or not. When someone had their back turned, that's the grape they'd steal,
0: Yeah. And so that was sort of a follow-up. I think that was the second time we were down there with Graham and crew um, where we were looking at a different question. We were looking at this question of whether or not monkeys could think about what other people think about. And so we were trying to see whether or not they could take our perspective and whether they could take our perspective in a way that involved, you know, exploiting our perspective. You know, if they knew what we could see and what we couldn't see, maybe they would sort of use that information to rip us off.
2: Now, what about do chimps do that? Because they're closer to us than monkeys are evolutionarily. Do chimps, are chimps able to do the same thing?
0: They are. And what's surprising is this capacity to figure out what other people's perspective is. It, it seems to be pretty robust. We're doing some new work now in collaboration with this scientist, Redwan Bashari, uh, and, and 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 Katie McAuliffe, where we're doing the same kinds of studies in fish in cleaner fish, um, mm. who are these little little reef-dwelling fish who kind of help and cooperate with other individuals. And what we're finding is that they can do this too. In other words, they can track what other people can see and what they can't see. And sometimes when you can't see something, that means that it's okay for the fish to kind of cheat in certain ways. And so this this capacity, while it seems kind of smart to sort of think about the perspective of other people, it seems to be the kind of thing that animals share pretty broadly across different phylogenetic groups.
2: Dogs have it.
0: Yeah, dogs definitely have it. There's a clever study that gets dogs to do this, where they uh, they they put a dog in in place and and put some really exciting toy that the dogs want, and say, "Don't take that." And then they shut the lights off, so now no one can see. And what you find is that dogs are more likely to try to steal a toy or a piece of food they're not supposed to take when the lights are off and no one can see them.
2: <laughs> well, it seems it does. You said it seems smart. It seems extremely smart to me to be able to take someone's perspective because I know a lot of people who can't do that. (laughs) So a cleaner fish can do it better than a person. I'm a little worried. Is there any connection between these things we've been talking about just now and, and your work on happiness?
0: Yeah, it, not really, honestly, but I'll try to answer the no, question no, anyway. No, well, um, yeah.
2: d- dig in, you might find something you didn't expect. Yeah,
0: yeah. I, I think the, the connection is that, you know, throughout my career, I've really been interested in these, these things that are really deep, right? The deep parts of our minds that are built in. You know, the kinds of things we share with monkeys, the kinds of capacities that are evolved, that are hard to overcome. And the connection with happiness is that if you dig into what we think makes us happy, if you dig into the intuitions we have— a lot of those seem to be built in really deeply. And in some sense, they are also wrong as far as we can tell, right? We have these capacities that are kind of old, that are, you know, have expectations about the kinds of things that will make us happy, but they're not necessarily the smartest ones. They, they feel like they're almost in beta testing. And so I think that's the spot where I see a connection across the work is that, you know, when we think about where we go wrong in seeking happiness— there are all these bad, dumb intuitions that feel evolutionarily old and kind of out of date. And a lot of what I teach people when I talk about happiness is how to overcome those bad intuitions. So that's the closest, that's the closest I have. The, the other version is like being on Monkey Island, despite the poop, it actually makes me happy. It's beautiful. I love watching the monkeys, you know, lots of palm trees and things.
2: Well, you know, you were you were saying a second ago that people have sometimes the wrong intuition about what makes them happy or what would make them happy. How do you define happiness? What what, what to you is happiness? Bef- before I figure out how to get happy, I'd like to know what it is.
0: Yeah, well, I, I mean, I ignore that huge philosophical question by just stealing the answer that social scientists give. And so social scientists tend to think of happiness in two parts. One is kind of how happy you are with your life and how happy you are in your life. So how happy you are with your life is, is what researchers call life satisfaction. It's kind of answered a question, all things considered, how do you think your life is going? How satisfied are you with your life? Um, so that's kind of how happy you are with your life. But there's also kind of how happy you are in your life. Like, are you experiencing lots of positive emotions? Do you have relatively limited negative emotions that you can handle? You know, if you answer yes to both of those questions, you know, if you're happy kind of in your life, you're really satisfied with your life. And day to day, you have a lot of laughter and joy and positivity and not as much kind of anger and sadness, then I can say, for the most part, you're happy. And now, you know, philosophers, we, we could debate whether or not that's a good definition. But usually when social scientists are talking about happiness, they're measuring one or both of those concepts.
2: So basically, the scientific way to look at happiness is happiness is when you're not kvetching.
0: Yeah, kind of. Or, or at least that you don't have things to kvetch about. Because yeah. I think sometimes people kvetch even when they are having positive emotion and they're satisfied with their life.
2: So let's say you have the feeling that you're not happy. You, you think, oh, she's talking about happiness. I want to get happy. I want to get happier. First of all, is happiness a thing that either you got it or you ain't got it? Or can everybody get a little better?
0: Yeah, uh, I think, you know, Yes and no, I think, is the answer to that one. So we know that happiness and well-being generally is heritable. In other words, like if your, your parents' parents were happy, you're going to have a little bit of that happiness there. You know, identical twins tend to be more similar in their happiness levels than fraternal twins who are less related. This is how you do these so-called heritability studies. Mm-hmm. Basically, there's something about happiness that's in our genes, or at least in our epigenetics, right? Um, but that's not the whole story. And it turns out there's relatively little that's heritable. You know, it's about as heritable— is something like height, right? Which is, mm-hmm. There's a lot of room to kind of wiggle around with something like that. And so, and in some ways, I think that that's fantastic news because, you know, it, it could be that it was all built in, right? And that we have no way to intervene on it. Mm-hmm. The data suggests a little bit's there, but there's actually lots of different things we can do behaviorally to feel happier over time.
2: So does it matter what you're unhappy about or are there general principles that can make you happier regardless of what the pain is that's that you got
0: yeah. Well, it turns out it, it kind of depends on how you want to go about being happier, right? And so so our intuition often when we think about getting happier, we think that what we need to do is to change our circumstances, right? You know, I have to switch my job or get a new partner or like just change something big about my life. And so we could ask the question, you know, when does that actually work? When does changing your circumstances actually increase happiness?
2: It's close to never, right?
0: <laughs> well, well, if you're in pretty dire circumstances, it works. You know, like yeah. if you're in a refugee camp, if you don't have right. enough money to Put food on your table, and it's it's worth saying that you know because you know some people go through that you know, Um, but mostly you know my guess is for most people listening to this podcast, if you have like you know a decent middle class income, if you have a roof over your head and food on the table pretty much changing your circumstances is not going to affect your happiness in the way you think, which is a startling discovery. It violates every intuition that I definitely have about happiness and that most people have. You know, we think that happiness comes from our circumstances, but in practice, it comes from all kinds of other things. It comes from our mindsets. It comes from our behaviors, um, which is frustrating because, you know, as a happiness expert these days, I see a lot of people putting lots of work into changing your circumstances But that's not going to help you in the way you think.
2: Do you have an origin story about how you got interested in happiness?
0: Yeah, this one for me is a really clear origin story, which which involves my job at Yale. So, you know, when, when we first met and I was doing most of the monkey work, I was a professor in the psychology department doing the normal professor things. Um, but in the last couple of years, I took on a new role at Yale where I became one of their heads of college, um, which so it's, it's worth sort of setting the stage here. Yale's one of these strange schools like Hogwarts and Harry Potter, where there's like, you know, <laughs> Gryffindor and Slytherin, these kind of schools within a school. Um, I'm the head of Silliman College on campus at Yale, and that means I live on campus with students. They're like this kind of strange extended family that I eat Mm with in the dining hall and hang out with. And, you know, when I took on the role, I thought, you know, college students like super happy. I I thought back to my college days and thought, you know, I was just going to see students who were partying and happy and... (sighs) And when I took on the new role, I saw, like, incredible mental health dysfunction. Like, and and it was kind of shocking, like, the level of students who were depressed or anxious or just, like, so stressed it was hard for them to function. And— at first, I got really worried. I was like, you know, what is wrong with Yale? Or what is wrong with, you know, the Ivy League schools that I'm seeing? this? Is this just elite students? But then as I dug into the data, I realized this is not just Yale students, right? Right now in the U.S. nationally, in in a recent national survey, uh, 40% of college students report being too depressed to function most days. And over 60% say that they're overwhelmingly anxious. And what's striking is over 10% say that they've recently thought about suicide, Like, like seriously considered suicide in the last six months. And so that felt really frustrating to me because I'm like, you know, these are kids who are at Yale. You know, they kind of hit the college lottery to get into this great school. They're young. Most of them are healthy. It felt like, you you know, what could they be so upset about? And so that was when I started digging into the work on happiness. It was really an attempt to try to make them feel better, you know, just to sort of use the research and figure out, okay, what strategies could these students put into effect that would make them kind of overcome all this stuff? And so that was the impetus, but then as I dug into it more and started reading about these misconceptions and circumstances, you know, then I have to admit it also kind of became a little bit of a personal project, too, because I'd like to admit that, you know, I was perfectly happy and never kvetched about anything. I was satisfied with my life all the time, and I should have been, right? You know, I was really happy with my job and and my family and things like that, but in practice, I kind of got a little bit what the students were saying. You know, I was feeling a little you know, anxious and depressed and, and not as satisfied with these circumstances that were objectively pretty good circumstances. And so, you know, as I dug in more, I was like, well, this is going to be useful for me too. Like, it's going to be really great not just to teach my students about this stuff, but to be able to practice what I'm preaching to them too. Yeah.
2: Happiness is a funny thing because I remember a time in my life when I was happy, but I felt I was lacking something. I remember thinking once, is this all there is, happiness? You know, it's kind of a crazy thing to say.
0: But I think a lot of people go through that. I mean, this is one of the examples I give to my Yale students. You know, many of them, when they're in high school, think, you know, if I could just get into a school like Yale, I would, like, be happy forever. You know, Mm -hmm. the moment they click on that, they, they get a little link from the admissions office when they get in, and they get a little video that says, like, congrats, you got into Yale. Like, many of them put that moment, like, if that moment could just happen to me, I'd be good forever. And students, of course, are very happy when they find out they get into Yale. That's a good moment. But many of them describe that the moment right after that is a moment of deep despair, where they think, like, I thought if that happened, I'd be good, right? But, you know, that happened, and I'm still, like, lacking something. Like, what else is there, right? And I think this is a common experience. You know, so many people think, you know, if I get the perfect relationship, I'll get married. Or if I get this accolade at work a promotion or whatever, I'll be happy. And then we get there, and there's this moment, of course, where that feels good, right? Because these are good things. But then immediately after that, we have this feeling of lack, right? And that's in part because we think that that circumstantial change is going to be the end all and be all of happiness. You know, this notion of, like, happily ever after, I think messes us up a lot from Disney movies, right? We think we're kind of good. But that's just simply not where happiness comes from. It really... Is about our behaviors. It's about the mindsets we take to things. It's not kind of a destination. It's a journey, which sounds really cheesy. It sounds like a bad like Hallmark card. But in <sighs> practice, like that's really what the science shows, which is kind of cool.
2: I've seen that over and over again in uh, in show business. I've met so many people who thought if only they became famous or rich and famous, which often are put in the same bag, and they're two completely different things. Uh, if only I could become famous, my problems will be solved. Then they become famous and they find out they have more problems than they had before and none of them are making them happy.
0: And you might ask, like, how do people... Know what works for happiness, right? Like, how do we and know that what was makes my you happy? next question? <laughs> so, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm like jumping ahead, right? Um, but but the way we know is empirically. So, like, what scientists do is they go out and they find people who self-report being happy. They self-report saying, "I'm super satisfied with my life," and "I'm super satisfied in my life." I have a lot of positive emotions, so on. We find these folks; they're out there, you know. We can we can drag them in and do studies on them. And then what we do is we just kind of do a survey, like how do they spend their time? How do they behave? Are they spending more time at work? Are they spending time with kids? What do they do? And then once you get intuitions like that, then you can do real experimental studies. You can take the not-so-happy people, make them do the behaviors the happy people are doing, oh. and then you see if their happiness goes up. And, you know, it's, it's shocking and now this is people- all
2: self-reported happiness. You you don't have—you don't read them like the wagging tail of a dog. Or-
0: exactly. I mean, I wish—as a scientist, I wish we had, like, a little happiness thermometer. We could put it in, and like, <laughs> boop, you know, like you're a 100 on this happiness scale. We don't. <laughs> Um, so maybe maybe like, being
2: studied makes you happy.
0: It might be, yeah. I think it, <laughs> that, that would be great for our research program if that were true, <laughs> if we could publish that.
2: Okay, so now we know how psychologists measure happiness. When we come back from our break, I ask Lori Santos the question you're probably waiting for. How do we find happiness right after this? I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid... You can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on a virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free. But you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Alda Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies
0: and series. On Disney+, Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone, in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney+, and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house.
1: Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? you left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends.
2: This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Laurie Santos and what she's learned about how to be happier.
0: The biggest takeaway, I think, from the work on happiness is that happy people tend to be pretty social. Um, So every available survey I've ever seen of those happy people find that happiness is correlated with, like, hanging out with more people, spending time with friends and family members— even when we do interventions where we force people to be a little bit more social, in general that leads to higher positive moods and higher things like life satisfaction. Um, One of my favorite studies on this comes from a researcher, Nick Epley, who's at the University of Chicago. He's great. He does these studies where he forces people to be social uh, with strangers. This is before the time of COVID when we had the possibility of interacting with strangers more closely, but he takes uh, people on the L train in Chicago and he says, do you want to be in a study? Great. And he says, "Okay." In this study, you have to do one of two things. You either have to spend your whole commute train ride talking to a stranger, like pick someone and just really try to get to know them and like have a real social connection with them. Or he tells people for the whole train ride, don't talk to anybody, be be silent and just like try to enjoy your solitude. And then he has people at the end of the train ride just say how positive it was. Um, He also knows that people's minds are bad and have these bad intuitions. So he has a different group of subjects predict. And so the subjects predict that, you know, enjoying your solitude will feel good and that, connection condition is going to be actively bad. It's just going to be weird and awkward and just not even just <laughs> n- neutral, but like actively not good. But what he finds when people really do it is that people statistically report feeling more positive when they connect with the stranger. Mm. And he finds that that's true both for extroverts and for introverts. So this intuition we have that, you know, connecting with a stranger is going to be weird and awkward. Turns out that intuition is just wrong.
2: So you, you brought up COVID during this period Who knows how long it'll last. We can't even make contact with people we know and love, let alone strangers. So I would imagine if what you say is true about contact with other people being important to happiness, there must be a lot of unhappiness getting stirred up now because we have much less contact except two-dimensionally on a computer screen.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think this is a huge thing. We're we're only now kind of getting some reliable data in pre COVID to post COVID, and you know what we're finding is that you know COVID is having a huge hit on people's well being, like like large increases in things like depression and anxiety, especially among young people and especially among people of color. Like those groups are getting hit, like in terms of their mental health, hit even worse than others. Mm. And I do I I agree with you. I think a large part of it is social, right? Um, You know we we're missing out on these tiny social interactions that feel really good. You know, think of Nick's study. Maybe not all of us, like, talk to the person next to us on a train the whole way, but, you know, most of us, like, had a quick chit-chat with the barista at the coffee shop or, you know, as we're walking to work, like, you know, said hi to the guy down the hall or, like, had a little, you know, office cooler chat, right? And even though we're using these technologies to connect with people over work and and even with some of our friends, I think a lot of the informal stuff has gone away, you know, and Mm. that's... That's that's tricky. I think I think we're only now realizing what a hit that's having on our well-being. Um, the good news, though, is that we can also use these technologies to try to build that back in, right? And the data suggests that that form of online connection, you know, we're, while we're doing this podcast, we're talking over Zoom right now together, like, it turns out it's pretty good. In the sense that you can watch my reactions in real time. You can listen to, you can see my facial expressions if I'm smiling or frowning or if I'm like looking away or things. Like a lot, a lot of the pieces of normal in real life social interaction are there. Like it's definitely not perfect, but it does a lot. And so I think the evidence would suggest that during COVID, really be more intentional about that, like intentional about connecting with the people you care about. You know, one thing I've experienced in this crisis is, you know, if I'm going to Zoom with like my next door neighbor at dinner, I'm like, wait, I could Zoom with a friend in London. I could like hang out with someone in California. Like I could get all my friends from college who are in different states together on Zoom. And, you know, I guess we could have done that before, but nowadays it feels like a little bit more normal. You know, I have a, a standing yoga session with friends of mine who are, you know, in California and in Seattle, and it's like I, I never did that before COVID, but now it feels more normal to do that.
2: It's interesting. I, as you talk, I'm thinking of what I've, what I think I've learned about social connections. I, I think basically I'm shy, and I probably prefer for a first choice the solitude you were talking about. But when I have an interaction with somebody on the fly. I noticed that it is not nearly as satisfying if there's one exchange. But if I go to the trouble of making an extra bonus exchange, they seem to look better, feel better, and I feel better. There's, it's, it is something, it's very interesting. It's, to, to extend it a little bit more means, yeah, we're making contact, and I mean to make contact.
0: Yeah, there's so many interesting things we get wrong about happiness, but especially about social connection. The data suggests that deep connection. You know, when we kind of share a little bit more, like, you know, that extra interaction as you talked about it, like, it turns out that that makes us feel happier. That makes us feel more connected. Um, Nick Epley, who I mentioned before, also does some really work on these deep connection. He has these kind of questions that are meant to connect you really deeply. Things like, you know, when was the last time you cried? Um, Or, you know, if if your house was on fire right now and you could grab two things, what would those two things be? You know, if I was like, oh, we're just going to, you know, you're meeting somebody on the train and you bring up those questions, my prediction would be like, that would be awkward. person would be like, what are you asking me about (laughs) when I cried last time, right? But it turns out that the awkwardness, like people love talking about deep things about themselves. And when you hear those answers of of deep questions like that, you feel like you know the person better. That like kind of just feels good as a social primate. And so this is a thing people in positive psychology are seeing time and again is like, we just get the consequences of our social interaction wrong. And that means we don't engage in activities that could make us feel really good. Um, Another domain in which we see this is the domain of gratitude gratitude is another thing that we know is, like, super correlated with feeling happy. And this is one I get wrong all the time. You know, we talked about kvetching. And, like, you know, if I had to plot my ratio of kvetching versus expressing gratitude, like, the kvetching would be, like, orders of magnitude (laughs) higher before I started this stuff. You know, I just thought, like, oh, that's funny. Like, that feels good, you know. But it turns out the data suggests that's not what happy people do. Happy people are counting their blessings. They're focused on the things that make them happy and that they're really thankful for. But more importantly, they express It. Like they spontaneously express their gratitude to the people around them, their coworkers, you know, their family members. And when you think about it, you know, there's a lot of people in our life that we're grateful for, but we often don't like say it. And if you Mm. ask why don't you say it, it's because like it would feel weird. You know, if Mm. I went to like you know, we're we're planning our semester at Yale, and there's a lot of people who are working incredibly hard. If I sent some, like, long gratitude letter to one of my staff members of, like, thank you so much. I know you're working hard. Like, my prediction is, like, that would feel a little weird. They'd be like, why is she sending me that? Like, eh, right? That We predict all this awkwardness. But in practice, the data show that expressing gratitude, no one feels awkward. People just feel like, that was awesome, like that you said this nice thing that I'm helpful to you, right? Like we predict awkwardness, but actually in practice, it feels really good, both for the person who's hearing the gratitude and for the person that's expressing it. And so that's just another domain where like, we don't do the stuff that's going to make us happy socially. And so it means we're missing out on all these opportunities to feel better.
2: I saw you in an interview on television where you were talking exactly about what we're talking about now, about happiness during the time of COVID. And you talked about acts of kindness as really giving you a little jolt of happiness.
0: I mean, I think this is something that's so foreign right now. You know, if if in the time of COVID, I feel like I hear so much about self-care, you know, self-care, treat yourself like self, 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 right? That's That we think (laughs) is the path that, you know, like bubble bath for yourself and all these things, right? But actually, the data suggests that rather than spending money or spending time on yourself, doing things for others is the kind of thing that bumps up your happiness. Another domain that we mispredict. You know, if I said, you know— I'm gonna give you twenty bucks right now. You could spend that to do something nice for somebody else, or you could you know buy some cool thing for yourself, right? Which would you rather? Pretty much everybody takes the money for themselves, right? Mm. But it turns out that if you actually give people money, this is work by Liz Dunn uh, and Mike Norton. Um, if you actually give people money and have them spend it on other people versus themselves, they're happier at the end of the day when they spend the money on other people. So it's not, again, a a case where we're just mispredicting. Like, we we think it's going to be like, I should double down on doing stuff for myself, but actually doing nice things for others um, is sort of what you should do. And. I'm planning to do this, my, my birthday is coming up later this week, and I'm planning to do this, I'm trying to do like reverse presents, so I'm going to like buy presents for other people on my birthday, which I admit feels totally crazy, I'm kind of like like selfish birthday Laurie is like, wait, I want the presents, like I want to get the stuff, right? <laughs> but, but the data actually suggests that like if I really think carefully and do this surprise thing for other people, it's going to make me happier, so that might even be better than getting gifts myself, is sort of giving away giving it away to other people.
2: I was reading on, I guess it was Wikipedia about you, and I learned that your husband, who is a philosopher, for a while was a professional poker player. He was a poker player, it said, until he resumed his academic career, which is, I guess, where all the money is.
0: Yeah, you might might think so, but alas, alas, no, alas, no. Um, No, he he had a wonderful, uh, you know, we write uh, when you apply to PhD programs and things, you write this sort of essay, you know, like an application essay to get in. And he joked that he's like, some people's dream in life is to quit their day job and become a professional poker player. I have the same dream, but in reverse.
2: (laughs) (laughs) We had a poker player, uh, a a writer with a psychology PhD called Maria Konnikova. I don't know if you know her.
0: She's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And
2: she, she, she became a professional poker player and made money at it. and, It involved a lot of the things you're talking about with regards to happiness, with not being biased in a destructive direction.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, watching, because I remember watching my husband, you know, play poker back, because he would play online mostly back in the day. This was like back in the 90s when there was a lot of online poker and you could actually play more often for real money. Um, And, you know, he would have hands where he was like, you know, lose $5,000. And I'd be like, oh, you know, we're going to have yeah. to not go on vacation or whatever. And then hands we, you know, would gain $5,000. $5, and it, you know, th- that amount of variance, I think, is something that our brains are used to kind of seeing in these really crazy ways. But, you know, if you get used to it and have some acceptance over it, I think it's really powerful. And I think, you know, that fits with the kind of thing we see in the happiness literature, right? Which is that, you know, the One reason that we don't get happy with new circumstances is that we tend to adapt to those circumstances. You know, your friends you were talking about who wanted to be rich and famous, as soon as you get rich and famous, you're used to all the benefits of that. And, you know, like what was amazing to me was that my husband was adapted to these huge swings of fortune, right? You know, that just didn't affect him emotionally anymore. And that just shows the power of our mind to kind of get used to stuff, whether that's like, you know, good things, bad things, variance over time. Um, We have minds that, kind of get adapted really quickly. And that can be good, right? You know, that's good if we're talking about bad things in life. It means when awful things happen, you kind of get used to them and they're okay, right? But it also means that the good things in life don't keep affecting us positively anymore either.
2: So how about you? Now that you've studied this and really gotten into it and know how to think better and know how not to make these poor decisions, are you happier?
0: Uh, definitely. I mean, I take data on myself because I'm a nerd, right? So I do kind of <laughs> these standard self-report and kind of check. Um, so yeah, so on average on many of these sort of self-report scales, I've gone up about a whole point in a 10-point scale typically. Hmm. Um, and that's often what we see in the students who take the online class. On average, people go up about a point. Um, but I think, I think the, the one caveat to that is that even though I am happier, none of my intuitions have changed. Right, you know, like That's like I'm I'm behaving differently, but I still have all this stuff too. You know, I mentioned that I'm going to try to do this thing of send some gratitude letters and presents to other people on my birthday, and I'm going to do it. But my intuition is like, well, that sucks. Like, why would I do that? Like, I should buy myself something, right? Like, my intuitions are strongly screaming, like, why would you do that? But in practice, like, I kind of believe the data, and so. I think that's really important. You know, as you learn more about this stuff, it's not so much that your misconceptions change. It's that you learn to keep challenging them over time and you kind of behave differently anyway.
2: When you start to sense you're not as happy as you'd like to be, do you have a favorite remedy you go to first before others?
0: Yeah, it it depends on what I'm messing up on, right? I think usually my my remedy is to sort of assess where I am, right? Like, and um, for example, in things have gotten really busy as we plan to bring students back on campus. And I was feeling like flustered and stressed. And I was like, okay, like when was the last time I exercised? Exercise, the data suggests, really powerful for happiness, right? Like, when was the last time I like put some work in and did a Zoom call with a friend, right? Like, I try to assess where I'm not doing the stuff I'm supposed to be doing, right? Yeah. You know, like I I'd spent two hours complaining with the other you know professors who are bringing students back. Like, ooh, maybe I should have switched the gears a little bit and focused on what I was grateful for instead of the complaining, right? So it, it's kind of just what I usually do is to take stock, be like, all right, how, how many of my behaviors am I really following, right? Right now, And usually that makes me realize I'm not doing what I think. Um, I think I'll bring up one very specific thing when I, sometimes when I'm just feeling like stressed and really anxious, which I think in the COVID times is something that comes up a lot. You know, that's where I'll use the breath, which we talked about briefly before, which is such an easy strategy of just doing some deep belly breaths, which sounds so dumb. And, you know, I, I know Pedantically, people are like, you know, just calm down, like take a breath, you know, take a deep breath, right? People feel like, whatever, you know, like get mad almost if you say that. Um, But the data really suggests that that's a way to kind of shut off your sympathetic nervous system. It, It turns on the sort of rest and digest system, which is our parasympathetic nervous system. And it's awesome that we can hack our autonomic nervous system really directly through our breath. It's really cool we have the mechanism to do that. We just don't realize that we actually can do that often, right? And so when I'm kind of feeling anxious and stressed, I'm like, okay, you know, in between meetings, say, let me just do a minute of just breathing really deeply and focus. And again, my mind doesn't believe it. It sounds so dumb that that would work, but the data really suggests that it does.
2: I've been doing it since you mentioned it. I feel like a million bucks. Okay. (laughs) I can
0: tell you seem a lot calmer and more Well, I really do
2: feel better. I, I love it. Well this whole conversation has made me a little happier. I'm really uh, I'm really glad to have talked with you. We have to end our conversation but before we end we always end the show with seven quick questions that invite seven quick answers. They're generally roughly about communication. What do you wish you really understood?
0: Oh, I really wish I understood why our why we don't understand our own minds. If we could just understand our minds better, we'd be so much happier.
2: How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong?
0: Uh, I. How do you tell someone? Gently, maybe? <laughs> um, no, I think, I think one of the best ways to do it is to ask their story.
2: Um, uh, is to their hear story. their
0: story. They're like, you know, oh, how, why, why do you think that? You know, how did uh, you learn that? And sometimes you realize that it's not the facts they're holding on to. It's the sort of history of them. And so it just mm-hmm. allows you to understand better. And that can give you some traction for better relating.
2: What's the strangest question anyone's ever asked you? <laughs>
0: um, I get a lot of monkey sex questions that I won't <laughs> <laughs> talk about on the podcast. But yeah, it's in that domain.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's another podcast. <laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker?
0: Oh, I, I don't know the answer to that one. Um, I think, uh, yeah, may, maybe ask a really awkward question and oh, get them that's interesting. Feeling awkward, yeah, yeah.
2: What's that I I'm smell? Sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Let's say you're at a dinner table. You're next to someone you don't know. How do you strike up a real conversation with that person?
0: Oh, I steal Nick Epley's uh, deep conversation topics, which you can see on his website. Um, but you just dive in and dive really deeply. A really good one is the question we asked before, which is, you know, if, you could, if your house was on fire and you could save only one object, what would it be and why? Um, or, or you can ask someone, another great one is to ask, what are you most grateful for right now? Mm-hmm. Um, those often spark surprisingly deep conversations and get people talking in ways they wouldn't normally if you were asking about their job or the weather or something.
2: That's nice. What gives you confidence?
0: Uh, Science, you know, that we have this wonderful method we can use to understand the mind, to understand everything. And even though things look bleak sometimes, science works pretty good.
2: Last question. What book changed your life?
0: Uh, ooh, that's a hard one because there's lots of books that changed my life. I'll pick the one that most recently has changed my life, um, which is a book called The Stoic Challenge by the philosopher Bill Irvine. Um, it's how you can take situations that suck and reframe them as a game, just like the Stoics did back in the day. Um, that book has really helped me throughout COVID um, and has helped me with some health stuff recently that, like, yeah, totally life-changing, and it's a wonderful read.
2: Okay, I'll ask you the question. This is an extra question. question I ask my friends often when we're um, social distancing and we have a little get-together, you, you know, in a breeze so we're as safe as possible. <laughs> and I say, what's your favorite thing about the lockdown?
0: Uh I have lots of favorite things about the lockdown. I think the thing I'm looking forward to most about the lockdown is that there were so many things I took for granted in my, you know, pre-COVID life, you know, going to the coffee shop and grabbing my favorite latte or hugging my mom. And I truly believe there's going to be a time after COVID where I get to do those things. And when I experience them again, it's going to feel amazing. Yeah, I've already had that with my coffee shop. They kind of opened up for curbside pickup and I could go back and get the muffin I really love there and things like that. And that muffin tasted so much better. You know, and this is what we don't realize about happiness. Sometimes, you know, like, go, like giving something up or losing something can make it seem so much more valuable. And I think there's just so many small things we've lost, but we're likely to get those back. And when we do, they're going to taste so much sweeter.
2: That's great. It was great talking with you. Thanks so much.
0: Thanks so much for having me on the podcast.
2: I loved it. Thank you. This has been Clear and Vivid, at least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep Clear and Vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University, so your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Lori Santos is the director of the Comparative Cognition Laboratory and the Canine Cognition Center at Yale University. The most recent season of her podcast, The Happiness Lab, explores what she calls ancient secrets to modern happiness. Insights from the Stoics and Aristotle and Plato. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Bill McKibben, whose 30-year crusade to communicate the reality of climate change he believes is finally breaking through. We don't know if we actually still can solve this problem. The momentum of the physics is enormous. But the best science indicates we still have a few years. We still have a narrow window that is closing fast. So let's absolutely give it everything we've got for the next few years. And whatever that means, whether it means you know some of us end up in jail or it means people give money that is painful to give or whatever it is they do, that's what has to be done if we're to have any hope here. Bill McKibben, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, Please visit com, And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye bye.